On this episode of The Naturist Living Show, Media Relations. This episode of The Naturist Living Show is brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. At Bear Oaks, we offer traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Free your body, free your mind. www.bearoaks.ca Welcome, dear listeners, to episode 130 of The Naturist Living Show. My name is Stéphane Deschain. I am your host for the podcast and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. I want to start by thanking everyone who has been supporting us. Uh, we really appreciate all the Patreon donation. This particular episode is brought to you by Rick W., Jamie D., Noel P., Luke S., and Jeremy F. All these folks that are supporting us through Patreon are making it possible for the show to be available more regularly to support Samantha and other uh, support services and tools that we need to keep the show going. And uh, that results in more consistency and more frequency and the ability to get our message out there because the show will always be free. And uh, so if you're not supporting us yet, please go to patreon.com slash Naturist Living Show. I also want to thank Jan from the Naked Documentary. You remember that from a few episodes back. Um, the profits from people watching the show, uh, the documentary that they made, um, some of it goes to support Naturist initiatives. And he was very kind to give us a very nice and very good donation to help the show go. So thank you so much, Jan. I was contacted um, by Ross, uh, who's a regular listener of the show, about his new venture called The Unashamed. So he's trying to promote naturism. Um, he's a fan of the show. And he will also be donating uh, a portion of proceeds to the show um, if anybody buys some of the merchandise he's selling. He's done, and I, I don't normally promote just anything, but I really like the work he's done. He's got some really great cartoons that support the, the, the ideals of ethical naturism, of being comfortable in a regular life. And he, although the images on the website are all pretty white, they're actually available in all kinds of colors. So you can order um, shirts, ironically, clothing, um, with uh, the, or stickers and other things with the images, uh, the colors that you would like to see. Um, your own or that of others, and you can wear those proudly. Um, he also has some combined ones that really promote a multicultural, uh, multi-colored world that we actually live in that makes it so interesting. So if you have a chance, theunashamed.info is the website, and there'll be a link uh, which promotes, uh, the, which supports the show if you buy through that link in the show notes. We have a comment from uh, Dusty. Um, he actually sent me an email with this message, and he was asking me another question. Um, but I was so moved by the um, the comment, I asked him to call in and record it. So here it is. Hello, Stefan. This is Dusty. I'd like to thank you for introducing my young family and I to naturism. It started while I was researching why my one-and-a-half-year-old son never wanted to keep his clothes on when I stumbled across the Nature's Living Show. I listened to episode 33, Growing Up Without Shame, and was very intrigued. Then I went back and started from episode one and started listening quickly, becoming hooked. It took me a couple of months to introduce the idea to my wife after studying my Bible and listening to the Christianity and Naturism episode probably 25 times. She was a little hesitant to the idea at first, but after listening to several episodes, mainly the ones dealing with women, family, and Christianity, she agreed to give it a try. We made a more conscious effort to go nude around the house for a couple of months until it warmed up. 
as we live in Kansas. Once the weather warmed, we found a club reasonably close to our home and made a day of it with our son. She and I were both hooked, and we have gained so much confidence in ourselves. It's been amazing. We are now entering our third year of being naturist and are both active board members at our club, the Lake Eden Foundation in Topeka, Kansas. Again, Stefan, thank you very much for introducing us to naturism. So that's that really makes what we're doing worth it. I mean, everybody's support, all the positive comment are also incredibly gratifying, and we really appreciate all the positive feedback we get. We actually get almost, really, we don't get negative feedback. I've heard from other podcasters that they get nasty comments. We just get a lot of support from a lot of people, and we really appreciate that. Um, and when you hear of a story like this where you can have made a difference in a family's life, um, that's that's why we're doing it. That's why we have Bear Oaks. It's not for the tremendous money. Certainly the podcast is not for the money either. Um, it's for the satisfaction of making a difference in this world. And so thank you, Dusty, for sharing that uh, with us. It's, it's, really, it's really just incredible to hear that from all of us that work on the show and work at the park uh, and work in general to promote naturism that what we do does make a difference. So the next episode, not this episode, but the next episode of The Naturist Living Show will not sound like The Naturist Living Show. Um, we've, uh, I'm sure many of you have heard about uh, Evan and Naturist Vintage, and you've heard him in a recent episode talk about his family and the history. Um, Naturist Vintage is a Twitter feed that he has, and he's been doing a lot of the research on the history of naturism. He's been fascinated by it, which is something that I also really enjoy. And so um, he is putting together a, a podcast himself, but he didn't want to have the responsibility or the pressure of having a regular podcast. So he has access to a number of recording, um, some of the founders of this movement, and he is assembling those interviews into some really well-produced um, episodes, which will be if you will, a different category of the show. Someday it may become its own uh, podcast, but in the meantime, as a listener of The Naturist Living Show, you will benefit uh, by hearing those. So the next episode will sound different, um, but it's for good, and it's really interesting, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So today's topic is media relations, and... uh, I've been meaning to do this for a while. I've been asked a number of times to talk about it. Um, yeah, I'm pretty good about it. So people are happy with the results when I do interviews, and uh, I am too. I have fun with it. Uh, I'm not at all nervous. I'm very comfortable chatting. And that's because I know what I'm talking about, and that makes a big difference. And I'm very confident in what I'm doing, and I am very driven because, as you know, uh, you know I believe that everyone— in this world, can benefit from naturism. People sometimes say it's not for everyone, but I, I do think it is for everyone. But you have to want to, and you have to realize you you will benefit from it because there's so many people who make excuses for it, and you can't force people to become naturists. Um, so that's why it's important for us to get the word out and to talk that about the fact it's not just about being naked. Um, that there is reasons for it. That there's huge benefits. Uh, psychologically, emotionally, and physically for it, um, that it can change the world and it can change how people feel about themselves, how they interact with each other. And that's solving some really big problems about self-esteem that we have in this in this society anyway I and mean, in many other societies. And So media relations is a good way to get the word out. Um, you know, I've uh, if you want to see some of the work I've done because you haven't... Uh, I will put links to two episodes, um, a Calgary Naturist one I did with CTV a few years ago, when, and you, you heard in the last episode about Naturist Water Park, how they had some problems, and the interview I did there uh, in a topic that had some uh, controversy, and a most recent one that I had a lot of fun with on a uh, very popular breakfast television show here in Toronto for Work Naked Day. So you can see how I do it and how it works. Um, 
and how you, and I think they came out well. And I think most people have said they came out well. So I'm going to try to help you if you have an opportunity to do media relations work. I'm going to try to help you understand how you do this so it comes out well, uh, because media inclusions in the media is is better than advertising because it's more credible. It has more reach. People pay attention to their content. That's why they're watching or listening to a show or reading the articles. Um, but a lot of people are afraid of the media. And I understand why, because there's a lot of this, the stories that you see where people are, you know, the uh, the interviewer is catching somebody with some information and, and, and asking them a question that makes them uncomfortable and it looks terrible often for often they're bad people or people who have done something wrong so we kind of we see that it's bad but we also feel a little bit bad for them because they're uncomfortable and we don't want to be that person but let's start first with talking about what is media because that is not nearly as clear as it used to be so for that i did an interview with jesse brown and he's a canadian media critic he's very outspoken he has a very very popular podcast he was my inspiration for doing patreon um, and I've been listening to him since before he was doing that because he had another show called Search Engine uh, about uh, technology. Um, and the podcast side is where he looks at what the media in Canada is doing. It's a very small world, especially the mainstream media. And he criticizes journalists. He criticizes media outlet. He also gives them kudos when they do good things. Um, and so you can learn a lot about the media and what's going on and also about how dealing with them. I, I find it very interesting. So I gave him a call and we talked about what is media. My name is Jesse Brown. I'm a journalist. Uh, I run a company called Canada Land. We're a podcast network. I come from a background uh, professionally anyhow of um, public broadcasting and journalism here in Canada. Um, and about eight years ago, I set off on my own with this company and we cover things like Canadian news, Canadian media, the state of the news media writ large, global events, politics, all that stuff. And you're, you're a great example of the new media. I mean, you've become incredibly successful. I don't know if you want, if you're willing to share some numbers about how big you've become. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that succeeding in media right now, uh, you're hugely successful if you're alive. If you're <laughs> if you're just like, we've kept the lights on, we've been profitable. Um, so it's not that big a deal. It's kind of on the scale of like, a, I don't know, a successful restaurant. There's 12 of us. Um, we have an audience of about, our podcasts reach about 150, 160,000 people a week. Uh, we have a website that does uh, that does numbers that are you know, and over the course of a year we're we're hitting millions. But um, I think that the future of news media is a lot more like running a barber shop or something. That's yeah. that's uh, that's how we've been able to make a go of it. Is I think by not trying to take over the world, but by by covering things that other people don't cover and, and building an audience um, one person at a time. Yeah, and you, you cover the, the media landscape in Canada, and you do that very well, and you do it um, independently because, you know, it's one thing if one of the major newspaper reports on the media, there's a bit of a bias there, but you're totally independent that way, right? Well, we're not independent of bias. I don't think any, any media is. I think that, that um, you know, objectivity is a myth. But, yeah, we're independent in, in that traditional sense that um, you, when I started Canada Land, the, the specific point of it was to do reporting and criticism on the media itself. So it was very important at that stage that I wasn't doing this um, while, you know, being employed by those same media companies. This was, you know, the independence of Canada Land was really important. It still is important. Um, but, uh, you know, you got to serve somebody. We serve our paying subscribers uh, first and foremost. And, um, you know, we also take advertising, but we don't take advertising on, you know, from the people who we cover. So we, we keep our independence, uh, we keep purity that way. So there's no, there's no conflicts of interest. Yeah, I've always been impressed by how open you are and how you take integrity and admit when you make mistakes and recognize your bias, maybe towards the CBC, for example. Um, and uh, I am biased. I'm biased. <laughs> I, I, I'm biased towards loving. Uh, I love public broadcasting. They, the CBC, it's, I have a really interesting relationship because 
Uh, people are like, oh, what's your problem with the CBC? They gave me my first real job in media. They taught me how to make radio. How can I hate the CBC? They instilled in me the values of what it means to be a journalist in the public interest. But then, then they hurt my feelings. And so I have, I have a very... <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, anyhow, you've got a lot of listeners outside of Canada. Um, as, as circumstance had it, I found myself with a scoop, um, and the scoop was that one of their big star radio hosts was um, accused of very serious um, sexual violence, non-consensual sexual violence against a slew of, of former uh, girlfriends and other people. Um, and so anyhow, that, that kind of, I, I sort of have this, I report on them, I criticize them, but I'm a big supporter of public broadcasting. I think every country should have something like the CBC. Oh, yeah. And I think your criticism are absolutely, totally valid. And uh, so I'm just poking at you a little bit. But what, well, I'm, I mean, I'm sensitive, <laughs> so I, I, I overreacted. <laughs> That's all right. Um, what I'm trying to bring across is that you are uniquely positioned to really understand media and all types of media, and your objectivity means that you're kind of seeing it, not defending it necessarily uh, where it's going. And so I'm going to start by asking you, you said you're a journalist. What's a journalist? Uh, you know, we, we, we torture ourselves over this, and I have, I have a, a bit more of a wide-open and, and um, liberal approach to the term. First of all, like... You know, as as uh, Michael Enright, who is uh, sort of a mentor to me at CBC, put it, a journalist is somebody who owes money to a reporter. Um, a, a journalist is a way of trying to professionalize something that is a craft, not a profession, and it's a, it's trying to confer, you know, dignity and and um, uh, we shouldn't be dignified. Uh, I, I, I look at you can call it journalism, you can call it reporting, but I, I I think that before you even get to like the idea of like you're an ist, like you do this for your job or something, um, we're talking about uh, something that human beings do, which is that we report what we see and w what we think about it, right? I think the, the analysis can be journalism too. And I think that that's a basic human right, that um, the ability to tell the world what you see, what you witnessed, and what you think about it is, is not relegated to just people of a particular professional class. Now, there, there is, there has grown, obviously, there's, there's this uh, dying profession or dying trade, rather, um, of the professional reporter or the professional pundit. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're kind of like evaluating um, to what degree that's needed and necessary, to what degree can it be distributed to the public at large. You know, if everybody's got a smartphone in their pocket um, that can get broadcast instantaneously, you know, HD video of world events as they occur, and you're getting it from like a hundred different perspectives, so it's not being manipulated in an, an editing room, what happens to the reporter? I think that there is a place for the reporter or the journalist, and that is about analysis, that is about um, debunking false reports, um, making sure that all those different perspectives are, are consolidated so we get a full picture. Uh, I think the role, of, you know, about the professionalization of this is changing, and we, we, we're no longer the people who decide what news people get and what news they don't. And we're no longer the people who have to rush to the scene with a satellite truck or else it doesn't get seen. So we're figuring out what a journalist is. Um, I, I think that's an exciting project. I think that's an interesting project. It is. So, uh, you know, uh, Corey is very passionate, let's say, about uh, municipal politics in Tumbleweed, Alberta, and starts a blog where every week he reports what's going on. Is he a journalist? Uh, absolutely. Now, maybe we'll find out that Corey is taking money under the table, uh, you know, from one of the parties. You know, and then we'll say, well, you're not a journalist, you're a hack. You know, that, you know. Uh, it's interesting. What Canada Land does every week is we look at all of the different news organizations and hacks. And uh, what I've found is it's never quite so clear. Um, there are news organizations here in Canada. There's one called Press Progress, which is like funded by a think tank, um, an NDP think tank. That's sort of supposed to be the most far left major party in Canada. And they've got uh, this institute, the Broadband Institute, and that institute funds this news site. And this news site, you know, I'm sure conservatives would say, is uh, they're hacks. You know, they're just trying to propagate NDP talking points. But I'll tell you something, they break news stories, right? Like, mm -hmm. they, they, they get news stories out there that nobody else did. And it goes the other way, too. There is this one outfit that I find deplorable. Uh, called Rebel News. I, I, I think that they're uh, in they're extreme right wing. They they have been you know incredibly Islamophobic, and I and I think that they've transgressed the boundaries of journalism uh, egregiously. 
They're also suing me. One of their reporters is. Um, <laughs> and yet I will concede that sometimes they have information that nobody else does. And sometimes that information is really interesting, newsworthy stuff. Um, so I, you know, anybody can break a story. Anybody can tell the world something that the world didn't know before. And uh, we can have some kind of an academic debate. Well, is that journalism? Is it propaganda? Uh, I think that putting facts on the record is, is something that we have to be careful about saying this person does this, does it, and this person doesn't. Uh, because it's something that everybody can do. The, the, the downside is that not everybody has the training. Uh, they didn't mm-hmm. go to journalism school. They didn't learn about ethics and what's right and wrong. So that, isn't that scary? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it is. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, like, I think it amounts to maybe it just being like, I'm not saying anything here. Because, like, I'm saying both things at once. I believe in the process of journalism as it's practiced. I believe in finding multiple sources. I believe in trying to see things from different perspectives. I believe in verifying all your facts. I believe in correcting things when it's been pointed out that you got them wrong. All of the things that kind of make up the, 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 the trade, the practice, are, I think, really legitimate uh, rigors towards uh, a goal of truth. But I've seen them manipulated and used that you can, you can, you can cross off all of your, um, you know, tick off all your boxes on what makes this a reportable news story and still arrive at something that is completely cooked and fake. I've seen that happen again and again and again. I've seen other people who have no background in this, but who have some basic idea of morality um, be truthful and honest and forthright and in good faith. So I, I look at it as a discipline that is useful. And I think that when, when people don't know that discipline and they're coming at, you know, tweeting what they see or blogging about what they see, what, what you often find is that, um, you know, it's, it's rare for people to be lying outright. It certainly happens, but usually they think they're telling the truth. Usually we think that we're telling the truth about like what happened to us, you know, oh, eight years ago, I ran into this guy at a party and this is what he said. And if a journalist were to go and fact check that and call up, track down and call up three people who were there at that party, they would find that that's not what was said, that you're, you're remembering three different conversations and you've embellished it a little bit, you know, it, it, that, that is how the discipline results in truth. Um, and that is how people who are not part of that discipline all, all, frequently get things wrong. Well, in, in, in the naturist world, and you know, most of our listeners are either into uh, naturism or interested in it for whatever reasons, and we are often of interest to reporters, because well, nudity sells, I guess, partially. It's a little weird and that kind of thing. But people are afraid. They're afraid of journalists because they see that often journalists seem to want to take you down. Is that true? No, we don't want to take you down. We just want to make you into a circus sideshow. What does that mean, take you down? <laughs> well, you know, make you look bad, like politicians. Find the dirt. Come on, dig it up. Well, I think you're, you're talking about two different things. First of all, uh, I, I love what you're doing. A, a, a nudist podcast is a wonderful idea. For all you know, I do a nudist podcast. You don't really know, do you? Um, no, no, that's true. Um so, yeah, I, I think you're talking about two different things. I think that you're talking on the one hand about people's, um, people hate journalists, which is really weird because we're like not paid very well. And like, I've, uh, I haven't really met many journalists who are like on the take or corrupted um, or trying to lie to people. Like most journalists I know actually do give a shit about serving the public. They, they actually feel like, yeah, what, what am I here for? I'm trying to inform people. Um, somehow we've become you know, a real enemy. And, and, and I think we need to really try to understand that and not just be reactive about that. But anyhow, that's a digression. You asked me, um, is it legitimate when people think the journalists are trying to take them down? Um, maybe, sometimes. Um, but I think you're specifically talking about when people in your uh, community get a call from a journalist. And I think that that is usually um, more about, more about the media is looking for a fun human interest story that is usually not terribly concerned with, I don't know, the philosophies that go into what you do, which I won't claim to know much about, or the reality of what it's like to live in, in your community or, or with your ideas. Um, I think it's kind of like a school child's giggle um, that maybe is useful to fill up five or 10 minutes of airtime 
And there's, I think, a healthy skepticism. Do I want to be the subject or target of that fun human interest story after we've heard about today's politics and war? Now here's a naked person. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that is most of the time. But sometimes I think uh, people are afraid that the journalist is showing up. They're you know, going to say, oh, yeah, we just want to talk about what you do. And then they're going to say, here, I have this testimony here from Lisa who says you guys are a bunch of perverts. And then you'd be like deer in the headlights kind of thing. And I think that's the fear because they see that. They see that in the media. It's a, it's a tactic, right? Has that happened? Has it happened? Uh, not with by surprise. No, I don't. I don't know of once it happened. It happens that um, a few years ago in Alberta there was a, a bunch of people who protested um, a nude swim that was being held in a rented pool in Calgary, and it was a bunch of religious extremists who. who uh, actually, there was a bomb threat and that kind of thing. So the media there was reporting, but that was not a surprise to anybody. And frankly, that was the best publicity they ever got. They had more people after that than ever before. So you know. I don't think you should be afraid of the media, is my point. Uh, but there seems to be a mystery about how to approach them. If if anybody calls you wanting to interview you, do you take it? Um, I mean, most of, like, it's really funny because I'm a journalist who covers uh, journalists, journalists, right? Um, and so the people that I am covering, I'm writing news stories uh, about them, uh, they... they rely every day to do their own work on people taking their calls and responding to them and speaking candidly to them. And because they know how news stories get made, um, they are the most difficult, cagey, squirrely sources out of anyone you could possibly talk to. I've covered other beats. I've covered tech. I've covered different things. And nowhere is it harder. Like journalism is like, as soon as you're asking people, you know, will you give me an interview or you know, answer a couple of questions. What's your angle? Where are you coming from with this? Who else have you spoken to? What's this about? Right. Do I, you know, can I see my quotes? Uh, how do I know that you're, you know, because they, they know how it's done. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and, and whenever like, you know, some friend or family member is like, oh, a reporter called me. Should I call them back? I'm usually the same. I'm like, be very careful. Look them up. Who are they? What have they written in the past? You know, I, I never say, oh yeah, give, give them a call. Don't be afraid. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, because, it is true that before they ever called you, there was a conversation about what kind of a story they're looking for, you know? And, uh, I, you know, it sounds like that one example you gave of the swimming pool, there was actually a news story. There was a conflict. There was a, a group protesting something and another group that wanted to do something. So, you know, the reporter's just kind of going through the process of getting both sides of the story. But in other cases, when the media calls, it's like, we're doing a, a segment on this and we need somebody to represent that. And are they going to be, you know, are they, are they going to represent it well, or are they going to look silly? And you can, you know, we make those decisions sometimes because sometimes it'll be a better piece if the person is a little bit silly, you know, sometimes it'll serve uh, your story better to get, to get, you know, your, your, your casting. Uh, you, you can hire, hire, you, you can like, you can ask for people on one side of the story and you can look for somebody who's makes, who's a great talker. And then when you're trying to respect, reflect the other side of the story, you can go to somebody who, you know, um, you know, is going to present differently. And that, that's one way that journalists sometimes subconsciously cook a story. So, you know, I, I, I do think people should be pretty wary and leery. You know, it's funny because either people are running towards the press or they're running away from us. You know, a, a lot of the time, the hard thing is how do we get publicity? How do we get them to notice us? Um, and then people will actually play a role in order to get booked in a new story, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, are you, so are you saying you wouldn't take anybody who calls you? My, my, my running principle is I rely on journalists to take my calls. I will respond uh, as well as I can to any request for comment. Um, you know, sometimes somebody's like, Hey, give me an interview. And if it's, you know, you, you uh, I, I've known you as a supporter of, uh, of Canada land and as somebody I've enjoyed, uh, you know, emailing back and forth a few times and I happen to have some spare time. Sure. I'll do your podcast. Right. Um, but, but, uh, if I was more busy, I'd say, no, the, the, the people who I like, if somebody says, um, I'm a journalist working on a story, uh, or, or even I'm a, I'm a listener and I've got some tough questions for you about, about a story that you just put out or, you know, uh, the one that gets my attention more than anything is, I think you got something wrong. Um, right. yeah. I, I, I will, I have to be accountable, you know? So either me or one of my colleagues, we will deal with that. We're not going to just uh, ignore it. Um, 
so you know accessibility is sort of on a spectrum of like you know um if you were somebody different uh asking me to come and just have a free-ranging conversation I, I i had no idea what we'd be discussing today you know this could go anywhere if you were writing like a profile of me or if i had a sense that you were doing some kind of like investigation of me uh, i probably wouldn't put myself in a position to just like yeah let's just go on the record and chat wide open i would i would say, well what's this about do I need to get any documents in order? Do I have to be ready to defend myself? You know, it's 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 kind of a conditional thing. Yeah, but you you'd still kind of want to do it, but you want to be prepared. I, I don't see a, a a positive to refusing to be interviewed because to me, whenever I see a story, and we, they say, well, we tried to contact them and they ignored us and they wouldn't reply, I don't see how that makes them look better than if they had tried because the story is going to run anyway, right? Yeah, you make a really good point, and I often feel that that's true, that uh, sometimes somebody will come to us with um, with information that's really, really damaging about somebody, and, you know, we, I mean, we want to get the other side of the story, mostly, like, we want to get our facts right, and you, you often, you often learn a lot more when you speak to the other side, um, but sometimes, you know, they'll just say, they won't respond to you at all or say no comment, and then it's like, okay, I tried my best, and you can basically just go with whatever you want. And almost, almost invariably, they would have been better off if they had spoken to us. You know, they, 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 you know, like unless they're just like really, really guilty. <laughs> you know, you can get yourself into into trouble um, if if you give the interview and you think you can kind of like outsmart or dodge the questions. You know, if I'm doing my job properly, I'm going to ask you the right questions. And, uh, you know, there might be like a moment where it's just very obvious that uh, you're not telling the truth or that you did what you're accused of, of being done, uh, you know, in which case maybe you would be better off not talking to me at all. I mean, we're, we're in a weird time right now. Often what places will do is if they see that you're about to write something negative about them, they won't try to give you their side of the story. Maybe they don't have a good, a good side of the story. Instead, they'll go and publish 20 negative things about you. Uh, and they'll plant it in 20 different newspapers by 20 different people. You know, that, that can happen too. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's like, okay, you're, you're going to embarrass us in a new story. We're going to embarrass you. And we'll do it first. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it first and you won't know that it's us because we'll, we'll, we'll get proxies to do it. I mean, there's all kinds of strange stuff happening these days. So on the other side of that, you know, getting media coverage is better than advertising because people pay attention to the story, whereas they try to skip every commercial they can. How do you get... Uh, journalists to pay attention to you you mean in terms of journalists in the audience yeah well no to list yeah to if you want a story written about you you want to, you want somebody to 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 cover something you're doing sending press releases doesn't work anymore. i hear you i hear you i i mean the truth of the matter is that the dynamics are all very different than they used to be um and here you are you've got your own podcast right mm -hmm. um you're, you're probably you know now on the one hand you're speaking to you know you're uh, preaching to the converted, uh, you're speaking to your established audience, you know, like getting a big newspaper article will be a better way of kind of spreading the word far and wide and, you know, I don't know, getting more people into the thing. But uh, I think that it's the same thing that celebrities realized. Um, they used to play games with the tabloids where they would, um, they would try to, get, you know, it's like the only thing worse than, uh, than when the media doesn't leave you alone is, uh, is when they leave you alone. So celebrities would hate being, you know, hounded by paparazzi, but the only thing they hated more than that was when they were no longer famous enough um, to be hounded by paparazzi. Um, well, now they have total control because they just have their own Instagram accounts and um, they, can, they can get as much exposure as they want um, and they can kind of like cook up their own little, you know, uh, there's dramas and they can get into fights with each other and there's like, you know, little things you can do to uh, spark interest and make sure that your posts get seen far and wide, but you have total control. Mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing the same trend play out with politicians and companies. Companies are saying, well, why should we be trying to get people to write about our product? Let's just like have our own show or have our own you know, social media accounts that have bigger audiences in some cases than um, traditional media. So we're no longer the gatekeepers. And, you know, it's this, it's now it's just like a fetish of like, places wanting to get a few articles written because it, it kind of bolsters your thing. If you can get like the legitimacy of like a big well-known newspaper to, to do a feature on you or to, or to review your book or something, but then you're not even doing it for the impact of that. You then take that review and you put it on your own social media feed, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. The, the, the Being in the, the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail gives you the credibility when you're sharing it on Facebook. 
that's it. That's it. It's it's not it's not the audience that we that we own anymore. Media doesn't own the audience anymore. What we have is we've got a little bit of a of a stamp. We have a brand uh, that still, you know, it still connotes some level of objective reality. Um, that you know, if this got endorsed by, you know, the uh, Globe and Mail, New York Times, then it's better than me just saying that I'm great on my own. So in. Where do you think, I mean, this is not that important to uh, people listening right now, but it's just interesting. Where do you think media is going? I mean, newspapers are dying, obviously. But nobody watches live TV, so live the news at six doesn't matter anymore. Where's, where's media going? Where's the news going? Uh, down the drain right now. Um, it's bad. It's really bad. Um, but I, I try to be optimistic. I mean, like, for, there, there are some truths that are just eternal. People wake up in the morning and they want to know what's going on, right? There, so there's a market need. The market will always want news. And um, what's happening in the, in the interim is that there are fewer reporters giving traditional news to meet that need than ever before. And so that space is being eaten up by everyone else. And that might be benign. It might be that the you know the news feed that is created by your friends posting to facebook and your family that's really relevant information for you uh, not for anyone else but for you that's that's more interesting than what's most of what's on the news there's nothing wrong with that um and then you get a bunch of opinions and people fighting on twitter well uh, i love twitter for all of its problems because i i i, I get news the first there and i i like the analysis and i like fighting with people um but then there's this like as the hole gets bigger, um, it gets filled up with bullshit. And that can be anything from the dreaded fake news of uh, various uh, commercial or just political ideological groups um, lying uh, to get an agenda out there. But more often than not, it's just like some combination of PR and special interests or politicians. You know, here in the province of Ontario, our premier, Doug Ford, has Ontario News Now. So his own, like, you know, propaganda channel on YouTube is made to mimic a news channel. So everybody's, like, kind of trying to make it look like news. And when you scrape an article from an industry association's blog, it looks like a news story. So, you know, that's kind of what, like, the, the, the nasty part that we're stuck in right now where a lot of the information coming across is really hard. Like it, it just, no one has actually given a damn to put it through that process, that rigor, that discipline of journalism. Um, and I'm hopeful that that's going to scare the hell out of people increasingly. And maybe that's, uh, maybe that's an optimistic hope. But I think that like we're getting some wake-up wake calls when you see people going into, you know, cosmic pizza with a rifle because they've been lost in some QAnon world or when you see the siege on Washington... And you start to realize, wow, there are a significant amount of people out there who are part of an information ecosystem where they're just living like on cloud cuckoo land, where they're just believing absolutely wild stuff that's not rooted in fact. I better give some money to a decent news organization. Like, we, we got to push back against this. We, we got to make sure that, like, you know, whether or not it reaches everybody, at least it has to be, it has to exist. You know, there are many legislatures where there's just no journalist there writing down what happens. And I think that, you know, the week after the last journalist leaves the legislature is the day that the mayor gives his brother-in-law the no-bid contract. And so we're going to have these episodes play out on local and, you know, global scales where we realize the cost of, uh, of a fact vacuum. And... I just hope, and my experience with Canada Land, you know, we're small, but we have thousands of people who pay us, you know, five, ten bucks a month. Um, those are the people who are going to keep the, the, the torch lit, you know, like that percentage of the population that's willing to spend, you know, a sandwich worth of money on facts um, is going to make it possible for there to be a record that is, uh, you know, not perfect, but at least accountable and at least, you know, at least concerned with accuracy. Yeah, the, the, the question is, who's going to pick up that baton uh, and start it? I mean, it's a chicken or the egg situation, right? There's no money, so who's, how can you do it? It's just, we just got to get, no one's going to do it but us. You know, uh, journalists who've been laid off, getting together with citizens who are afraid. You know, citizens who just want, want the facts to be there. 
We just got to make a deal with each other. <laughs> be afraid. Be very afraid. There's all types of media. Um, a blog is media. A podcast is media. I am media, but I'm not a professional. I'm not a trained journalist. I try very hard with this podcast to be objective and to follow rules as I understand in the media, but certainly not everybody does, and I'm not sure that I do it to the same level. I don't have an editorial team. You know, there's a lot of criticism of large, big, mainstream media, but you have to give them credit for having processes and having standards um, and uh, for, you know, they make mistakes and admitting their mistakes as well. And that, unfortunately, in smaller media, that fact-checking, that editorial, the different levels uh, doesn't exist. So that is definitely can be a concern uh, when a story is being run because it may not be based on facts and it may not be checked. Um, and so something wrong can really go out there. But because something is not mainstream media, of course, doesn't mean you should not participate. In fact, most people are not listening or reading mainstream media as much as they used to be, so it's important to participate in all kinds of media. Um, but no matter what, I think the strategy is basically the same. And so let me give you my, my knowledge, my hints, my uh, strategies for how I deal with the media. The first and most important is you need to know your topic and you need to practice. Now, knowing your topic means you need to understand, not just memorize answers to questions. Um, because if you understand, you can answer it in a different way and you won't sound like a robot. But the answers are to very, very typical questions. I, I'm, I am surprised if somebody ever comes up with a question that I haven't heard before. Because in naturism, they're very, very predictable, especially when you're dealing with a, just a general interview. So there's a lot of FAQs out there. I have a section for Bear Oaks called First Time Questions. Um, there's a whole section on, on children and naturism and what is naturism. That's a very common question. What is it? Naturist versus nudist. Why? What does it mean? There's lots of different things that people ask regularly. So I'll put links to those in the show notes. And you can use those. You can find your own source of information. But the key is to understand what the movement is and how you believe it is so you, you can then talk about it. And believe me, if you really understand it, there is no question that can be asked of you that you cannot answer and in a positive way. There's no negative to naturism. You know, it, 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 so it's easy. It's actually very easy. And the key is to be prepared and be the expert. And remember that you're the expert and be confident. The second thing is, because you're trying to get your message out, is you have to have some key messages. And you have to practice smoothly incorporating them in your answers. There are terrible ways to do that. And you see politicians do that once in a while. You know, somebody asks them, what color is the sky? And they talk about water. Like, it's not... They, that's terrible, it's insulting, it's obvious that they're avoiding a difficult question. The real skill is the ability to bring in the key messages in a way that seems natural. Again, it can't be practiced, it has to be worked into it. And that's something that really does come with practice. Like you just cannot, if you haven't done this a lot, it's hard to do. So you have to kind of think through and practice and asking yourself questions. You know, the questions are that, what questions could possibly come and how would I answer it is a way that helps you practice. So the two key messages that I always try to include is first, that naturism is a centuries old philosophy. And what that means, it's, it's well-established. It's not just from yesterday. And it's more than just being naked. The word philosophy or ideology or however you want to position it and or things around that makes it more real, makes it more makes it deeper and more meaningful than just running around naked, which can on a surface, that's what everybody on the outside thinks it is. So I try to get that in there in all the messages. The second key message I always try to get in is that Natris is family oriented. Um, that's important for a number of reasons, not because that 
it's only kids that are important or families with kids, not at all. But the family-oriented, the family aspect of naturism means that everybody's welcome. It's not adult. Try to avoid saying that, you know, it's not sexual because that puts the emphasis on the sex again. You'll end up talking about it because that's a common question. But I try to bring in children somehow in it. And people often can go, oh, about children? What? There's children there? Be prepared to answer those questions, how it's safe for them. All those questions, again, are in that page that we have that I'll post about naturism and children. And it talks about photography and it talks about all those negatives that people associate with children in naturism or think are an issue, which you've heard about us talk about even very recently in that water park episode. So just to give you an example of how that's done, Samantha is going to ask me a question. And I, I promise you, I have no idea what that question is ahead of time. And I will answer it and try to insert those messages into it. Ready? Here we go. How do the strict regulations on social media affect promoting the park? Social media has been a huge problem because um, naturism is, is, is more than just being naked, but yet seeing people naked is what you want to do, right? You, you're trying to uh, show people that you can just be normal, uh, live your life regularly, that it can be non-sexual, and a picture really is worth a thousand words. But social media has been banning the most basic things. And never mind, you know, showing all the kids having fun at the park in a picture. That would just just be the end of the world. So you see how you insert um, those themes in there in a subtle way. People hear it, but you're not pushing it and you're not being too in their face. And you can't do it with every question because it's going to start to sound weird. You know, I'm sure you've all heard interviews with somebody who seems to be repeating the same key message over and over again. That's, that's people trying too hard. You know, It just needs to come once, maybe twice in an interview. That's all you need. You might do it more than once because you never know in an interview what will actually be used because not everything is used and things get cut out. So. That's that's the skill, and that's the one that takes the most practice. So you can play that game just like I did with Samantha, with somebody else, have them come up with crazy questions, and see if you can find a way of inserting that in it. And it's a way to train your brain, and you can do it. Everybody can do it, but like everything else, it takes, it takes practice. The other thing to remember when dealing with journalists or people who pretend to be journalists or who don't even pretend to be journalists but still have a media outlet, is that they are people too. Their job is to ask questions that their audience wants to know. So don't take questions personally. Don't sound tired because you've been asked that question a thousand times. It's okay. Don't be defensive if they ask a question that sounds like they don't understand. They may not understand, but even if they do understand, their audience needs the answer to this question. So, you know, if they say, isn't it about sex? They're not trying to catch you necessarily. Maybe they are, but it doesn't matter. People are thinking that we all know that's our problem. So thank you is it, for asking the question is always my thought. Sometimes I actually say that. So because it gives me a chance to actually answer and deal with that. Okay, so remember to, to not be feel like it's a, it's a battle or it's defensive. You are the expert. They're interviewing you because they have questions. They may have concerns and there may be some controversy, but that's okay. That's, that's why you're there. You're there to address them. And if you treat them like a human being and you work with them because they have a job to do and they need to get a show out and they need to make it interesting. So, you know, making it interesting means that sometimes you can have fun. You can laugh. You can joke. You know, this is, don't be offended if there's humor. The way people deal with discomfort, and you will see that in that video that I told you about breakfast television earlier that I put a link to it. Um, when people are nervous, they make jokes and they laugh. They're not necessarily laughing at us. And if you're confident about what you're talking about, you're laughing with them. You're laughing at their discomfort and you're turning it around. So don't take humor as an insult. The, the, the humor is how people deal with discomfort. And you can use that to your advantage because you can still insert in there those key messages. If you get a journalist as you're having this chat to like you, then they're much more likely to cover you 
in a positive way. Everyone's biased, right? And it's up to you to provide that balance to that bias. You have a bias. I have a bias. The interviewer, the journalist has a bias. And there's nothing wrong with pointing out errors if they're factually incorrect or calmly disagreeing with the journalist. But you don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to insult them. You don't want to attack them. You want them to feel that you're having a really nice chat and you're very reasonable. And if they're asking you uncomfortable questions and you ask them in a nice way, maybe you can even feel make them feel guilty for having been a little harsh. And that's way more powerful than getting angry. Because in the end, they control the edit. And, they, and you cannot ask for control of that. You cannot ask to approve anything. That's not how it works. So what comes out depends on them, not you. Also, never say no comment. First of all, it seems really shifty and suspicious when people do that. I'm sure you've seen it. It's also very frustrating for a journalist. It makes them makes their job harder, makes them want to dig harder, makes them want to make you look like you're hiding something. But then don't speculate um, and certainly don't lie because that'll come back to bite you. Uh, you don't always have to know the answer. And if you don't know the answer, it's okay to admit that, right? I'm going to look into that. I had never heard of that issue before. That's interesting. I'm going to have to look into that. I don't know anything about it, right? There's nothing you can do. Don't try to make it up. It's not a test in high school. You don't get a failing mark for not answering. It's That's different. Um, when you do give answers, try to be as brief as possible. That's tricky, I know, but... You'll get cut, especially if it's an editor. If you have a live show, it's one thing, but most of the time you will get edited and cut. They cannot have you speak for five, 10 minutes. It's, it's you know, if I've done interviews where I have spent an hour or more talking only to come down to two minutes, not unusual, which is why you try to have brief answers that they can use. You're also making their job easier if you give nice, pithy, short answers. Um, if it is something controversial, because that will happen, avoid, uh, you should acknowledge the problems. That's part of the don't uh, say no comment, right? You, you need to acknowledge the, the problems. You need to be sympathetic when something's gone wrong, but avoid repeating the negative, right? Avoid saying things like uh, words, like, you know, that, that, that repeat what's happened. Let's say there was a sexual assault at the park. Try not to use those words because then they'll come out of your mouth in the interview. The reporters already said it. Let them say it. You just address and say how it's really sad and unfortunate. We're very upset that that happened. And, you know, we're, got, we're making sure this would never happen again or something like that. You, you can't avoid talking about it. But you have an opportunity to talk about it um, and address it and soften it. And that goes to one of my key things, which none of you agrees with, which is to take all interview requests. Some people will only take certain ones because they only want to cherry pick the best ones that will make them look best. But when somebody's doing a story, they're going to be telling the story with or without you. So at least if you participate, you have a chance to provide your side. You may not come out of that looking great, your club or organization may not come out looking great, but without you, for sure, you won't look great because it's already bad. So you have a chance to put your side, to maybe soften the thing. And, um, you know, there is, there's definitely no such thing as bad press. That's a stupid expression. Uh, there are many people out there that have been destroyed by bad press. So, you shouldn't look for it, but when it happens and when there's controversy and there's problems, you need to be there to give the other side. You need to be there to try to soften things. Um, it, you, you can't prevent some of these things from happening, but you can definitely try to manage them and try to make them less relevant. There are, that, that is the job of a lot of PR people, uh, spin doctors as they're called. And when they do it well, they can do a fabulous job, even with people who really deserve to be destroyed. We've all seen it. But assuming that it's a bad thing that happened that doesn't reflect on the whole club and you and your organization, you have an opportunity in talking to me. You should seek it out even when there's a problem. Make yourself available for comment. Uh, 
to give their side, give an explanation. And with an explanation, it might all seem reasonable. And again, if you get the sympathy of the reporter, you might actually look, come out looking all right. People might actually start to feel bad that whatever bad thing happened, happened to you, and you guys are all upset about it. Take some skills. You have to think about it. How do you approach it? You can't seem like you're insensitive. Um, but you can absolutely make people understand that that's not normal if something bad happened and that it's not something that is acceptable. And that brings me to another um, side, which is you have to respond quickly. If you get a phone call, you should have a strategy in your club organization for media calls. So at Bear Oaks, everybody knows if somebody from the media calls, they are to find me. I am the spokesperson. I know how to talk. Nobody else talks about it. They are to find me. And by, by that, I mean, this is almost like the one of the most urgent things that can happen. Because I know, and now you know, that reporters are often on very tight timelines. And if you don't respond quickly, they'll, re they'll finish their story and say something like, we couldn't reach them for a comment by the time this story aired or by the time we wrote this article. So in our case, people are to call me and page me and well, page me, that's an old text me <laughs> um, until I respond because it is urgent and I need to get on top of it. They can't just send me an email that I might not see till tomorrow. And if they call me and I don't answer, well, maybe I won't notice the voicemail. So I want to be chased in that case. And you need to find, make sure you're available 24-7 if you're the media person to deal with it. Otherwise, you will miss an opportunity to either have a really great story and somebody else will end up in the story or uh, their story will run without you and without you having a chance to provide your side and twist the story in your favor if and deal with negatives that may not be as bad as they might portray them otherwise. The last thing I want to say is do be careful. As I said, they're all human beings, but they're reporters, and their first job is to do stories. And so there's no such thing as off the record. Just because you say it doesn't mean it's true. There is within professional reporters um, an ethic that if you both agree it's off the record, they won't mention your name. But you've got to make sure that you know who dealing, you're dealing with and it's true. But if you just say something, well, off the record, this is what actually happens here. We steal all the money whenever we get a chance. That's too good of a story and they haven't agreed to off the record. That's going in the story. It's too good. You're giving them a good story off the record. You're going in there and you're going to be shocked when it comes out. So always assume they may be friendly and that's good. And maybe you are friendly. But their job, first and foremost, is to get stories that get read that get, or listened to or watched or downloaded or viewed. And if it's juicy, if it's interesting, if it's shocking, they will absolutely run it more, which is why we get good, a lot of media. We get a lot of media because nudity sells. And we get far more than our share and far more than we deserve. And it's so easy if you make the effort. Now, doing press releases doesn't work. Sending mass press releases generally does not work. But if you find a, uh, a media outlet and you target it with an interesting story, it's super easy. I've always joked, you know, that if I, when I was a scout leader, if I did a scout chess tournament and I try to get somebody to write a story about it, if I'm lucky, I might get a very local blog or newspaper to write about it. But if I had a naked chess tournament, I might get national coverage. Same event, different dress code. So we have the ability to get all kinds of media coverage. It's super easy, easier than anybody else. Of course, there's risks because we could be portrayed negatively. But that's up to you how you present it. And that's up to you how you deal with the questions and the issues. So I'll put a summary of all these points in the show notes. Um, I am very happy to answer any questions that you might have uh, about media relations. Um, feel free to send me a note, post something on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. 
Um, and if you want to ask a specific question and you ask it as a voicemail, um, then I'll play it on the show and answer the question there. So, and just shows uh, voicemail if you want to is uh, 905-473-6060, extension 333, or 888-373-9124 if you are in Canada and the U.S. Again, extension 333. You can also Skype Bear Oaks, just B-A-R-E-O-A-K-S, no space. And again, that puts you in a phone system for the park, and the show's voicemail is 333. And that's how Dusty left his comment that you heard at the beginning of the show. So that'll be all for this episode of The Naturist Living Show. Thank you for listening. Again, my name is Stéphane Deschaines. I'm your host for this podcast and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. I make the show with a lot of fantastic help from Samantha Graham, who makes uh, the whole thing so much easier by producing the show and doing all the time-consuming editing and asking me hard questions, as you heard. Support us on Patreon again, patreon.com slash naturistlivingshow, one word. Again, none of the money is for me. I don't take any salary, any payment. The money is to support the show so we can keep it free and keep doing it regularly and frequently. It supports Samantha and all her time she has to put in to keep things going. You can find links to all these items and a summary of all the points on the key strategies for media relations in the show notes on the website at naturistlivingshow.com. Very easy. And please keep sending your comments and suggestions just like the one I got from Dusty, those things keep us going. That's why we support and promote naturism. We really appreciate getting them. We read them all. We don't always have time to reply. Um, the show's email address is contact at naturistlivingshow.com. I hope you enjoyed this show and that you'll join us again for the next episode of The Naturist Living Show. This episode of The Naturist Living Show was brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. Traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Traditional values means that naturism is more than just taking your clothes off. It is a life philosophy with physical, psychological, environmental, social and moral benefits. Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park strives to promote those naturist values in a modern setting that provides the amenities and services that our members and visitors expect. Free your body, free your mind. Learn more at www.bearoaks.ca. Nudist fad began in Germany in 1903. Today there are about 500 nudist camps throughout the world, 24 of them in Canada. Between their continuing court fights with prudish policemen and other authorities, they do manage to get in some sunbathing and to convert a growing number of the uninformed. This nudist camp is near St. Catharines, Ontario. Operating for seven years, it has a membership of 400 adults and a quantity of children. Almost half the members are from neighboring New York State, where such nudist camps are against the law. One day each summer, Sun Valley Gardens holds an open house for anyone who wishes to visit, see the effects of nude sunbathing, talk to the nudists, and take their clothes off and join in if they wish. 
On the last open house, June Colwood and cameraman Bob Crone didn't go that far, but they did talk with the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Carl Rue. Did you have a hard time persuading yourself that uh, it was Im- that it was proper to be a nudist? Well, actually not. Um, when I was uh, young, I didn't have all the answers to this. Um, everyone, of course, uh, the parents thought it was something uh, I should not do, eventually indecent, but I thought just being nude, I couldn't be wrong. It was my body, and uh, I didn't do anything wrong with my body, so why shouldn't I be nude? Why couldn't I be nude? I enjoyed it so much. And I tried to uh, find somebody else who did it, to get uh, reinsurance of some kind. And I found then some people who did the same, enjoyed bathing in the nude or swimming, sunbathing and so on. And what about you, Marlies? Well, how did you become interested? Through Carl, in, in nudism, in social nudism, but without knowing that there were any clubs at all, I used to sleep in the nude when I was a young girl, in the summer when it was warm, and I also swam in the nude. I think you will find many people that, uh, that have experienced mm-hmm. that, and as soon as they find people that think the same way, it's natural that they like to go on outings like that together, you know, if you're all in the same state of mind about your body. Once you do people who are, uh, you said social, being a social nudist, yes. that is that quite a step for a person who's been quietly enjoying swimming by himself yes. or herself nude? Yes. yes, to most people it is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it more difficult for a woman to become a social nudist than a man? Yes, as a rule. Yes, we have more inhibitions by natural, I think, or educated upon us because the general the general idea about decency and attitudes uh, towards the body are to cover it always mm-hmm. you know. but once you experience people that feel the same way about it and and do it like mm-hmm. like you used to do on your own you feel it's on it's more in your mind than anything else mm-hmm. you have those fears it's Mostly people think, oh, people will look at me, but they don't because we all look the same in Mm -hmm. a way, you know. But I've seen husband and wife, or what I take for husband and wife here, the wife is fully dressed and the husband is nude. Does this often happen at the beginning? At the first day, maybe, it might happen, yes. But then after a while, uh, the lady feels, feels, uh, well, let's say, silly. Everyone is nude here and she's the only one eventually dressed.